I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher. If you were a subscriber to the New York Times in December 1982, and you opened up to the movie reviews, you would have seen famed reviewer Vincent Canby tearing a particular film to shreds with lines like, The screenplay by David O'Dell, based on a story by Mr. Henson, is without any narrative drive whatsoever. It's without charm as well as interest. And that Miss Piggy would not be kind to the Dark Crystal. Though I don't know if she would go so far as to sigh, Kel Bohr. And finally, the Dark Crystal contains some fairy tale violence that is often difficult to see clearly. Well, I think Mr. Canby is a fine reviewer, I think he was a little harsh on failing to recognize the technical achievements and marvels that bring the world of the Dark Crystal to life. But I do think he hits the nail on the head with the biggest challenge of any fantasy movie, the balance of a strong narrative, compelling, relatable characters, and a transportative world that is like nothing we know, but that we still believe exists. Fantasy movies are hard to pull off, debatably harder than any other genre. But the 80s were rife with them, sprawling, large budget, and ambitious, although not always successful financially or narratively. We're going to look at two of them today. But first, Cam, Alicia, where were fantasy movies in the mid-80s? Why did they boom? I think I know why. I'm giving this to Cam. <laughs> Cam knows what he's saying. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, I I, I also feel like uh, I'm going to talk a bit about fantasy novels, which uh, I know Becky is the <laughs> supreme nerd here, so <laughs> oh, feel gosh. free to correct me if I... If I have I... quoted Terry Pratchett twice on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Don't start. Uh <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, Star Wars it, it is there's kind of two streams. Stream one is Star Wars. I would also say the interesting thing to consider is Superman at the time was considered a fantasy movie. True. Okay. Superhero movies were fantasy movies until now when they are their own genre. Um, so yeah, basically you could make a movie. And of course, we're talking about 1986. By the time 1986 comes along, uh, there was three Star Wars that were. Uh, successful throughout making tons of money all over uh so that's one thing but I'll, i will get back muppets, to that the last one i was just yes, thinking that last two had <laughs> i mean I, I know you could argue that some some of the early things were close to muppets <laughs> well it's actually um, one of the reasons why jim henson had to start his creature workshop was because george lucas mm, kept hiring all them away and then he'd have to stealing. hire them back and then he's like you know what? i'm just gonna yeah. make one central place and you can hire them from there so i just keep that <laughs> i can keep them yeah so it's like i mean obviously people want that and the other thing to keep in mind is that star wars is much more a uh, fantasy films set in outer space than a science fiction film. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other side of things, which is to say the book side, uh, fantasy novels were bigger than ever. Uh, we talked uh, last season a bit about uh, The Silmarillion coming out in 1977, mm. which caused a kind of reboom after the 60s reboom of J.R.R. Tolkien. But uh, on top of that, 1977 was this massive year for fantasy uh, because Terry Brooks' Sword of Shannara came out 
some lesser kind of forgotten huge hits uh, like Catherine Kurtz's The Chronicles of Dorini and The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant by Stephen R. Donaldson. All those series and books ended up essentially creating like bestseller fantasy, like fantasy books and series that were making more money than ever before. Mm. Uh, book people tend to think that that is because Star Wars also, because <laughs> uh, Star Wars made people scramble so hard for uh, science fiction that it actually tanked the science fiction novel market. Interesting. Uh, and at the time, science fiction and fantasy were very much attached. So when science fiction tanked, there was big room for fantasy. As the 70s crested into the 80s it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and and they say as the fantasy uh novels boomed and boomed obviously there's stuff like dragon lance also starting which is huge dungeons and dragons came out yeah. in the, the mid to late 70s too so it's like suddenly everyone was real hungry for fantasy and that opened up what kind of fantasies could be uh interesting uh so suddenly there was what we now know as grim dark fantasy the really gritty kind of re-examination of fantasy which is maybe one of these movies uh, there was also <laughs> stuff uh like terry pratchett and Piers anthony started in the 1980s so like the the funnier stuff which is also maybe something we will be talking about today <laughs> uh but yeah it's it, it, people kind of chalk it up two ways there was obviously a massive market for it uh but also filmmakers grew up in the 60s in, in the Tolkien times when they were booming again uh, so it's it's interesting in 1981 you have your first uh, big boom of fantasy films uh, with John Borman's Excalibur which mm -hmm. I think is very influential on one of the films we're talking about today I just remember watching uh, that one in high school and just being horrified by being like I think sure. grade, grade 10 we watched it and I was like very Ooh. erotic yeah yeah I mean it stars <laughs> yeah. it stars Helen Mirren yeah, she Alan is, is sexy Morgana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, it's, 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 it's spicy for and started dating school. a very much younger Liam Neeson off of that yeah. film. Which well, to tell you about not? this, to tell you about this high school teacher, we also watched the Hustler version of Macbeth. So you know, oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> I watched we that too. Yeah. I, it's the best Macbeth. It let's is be weirdly. Uh, I think that every kid gets that one. Um, but yeah, so Berman's Excalibur came out. Uh, you might also know uh, in the UK when Empire Strikes Back was released they released in front of it a short film called black angel which is a, a like a high fantasy it's it's only kind of recently been dug up again it's it's really beautiful it's one of the uh second unit people on star wars i believe That's directed it uh look it up it's it's really cool it's a guy fighting a black knight it, mm -hmm. it's uh quite a bit like legend visually mm -hmm. i would say mm -hmm. uh but also in 1981 there's clash of the titans and dragon slayer huge uh especially in the uk these films were really hitting then in 1982 it essentially explodes with conan and uh beast master you got you know lady hawk lady hawk i'm uh, sure we brought up yeah I love lady hawk. <laughs> yes i watched the trailer for that because i haven't seen it in years i didn't have time to watch the whole thing but my god matthew broderick is matthew broderick no matter what century you put yeah. him in oh yeah and that predates yeah. ferris bueller by a solid two years i think yeah yeah Anyway, it, so there's there's constant stuff. I mean, uh, Never Ending Story in 1984. Uh, in 1986, that we were talking about, there's also Highlander. Uh, and all of this kind of continues just to, like, cap it off. They kind of say that the death of it is Willow, which is interesting. What we were just kind of talking about before, these films uh, are generally considered not financially successful, even though if you were an accountant, you would be like, well, they've 
paid more than their budget. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, at the time, they were incredibly costly to make. They were probably the most costly option you could do, maybe even more than sci-fi sometimes, because sci-fi is built sets, at least. Uh, and also, um, they didn't count the international market mm-hmm. often. These films did incredibly well in Europe. Sometimes they did very well in Asia. But you have to keep in mind that also this was like a time when those markets, it was years later. Like sometimes England, it would come out a year after it came out in America. Yeah, so you can look at some of these movies and they made a ton of money in another country. And I think it would be important to point out the two films we're talking about, Labyrinth and Legend, were produced outside of Hollywood. They are filmed in England. They are, I think, a very European sensibility to making films. Totally. So it doesn't surprise me that they do quite well overseas and then Hollywood just writes them off as a failure when in fact something like, and we're going to talk about The Dark Crystal, uh, made $60 million within its first year, which is huge in 1982. Yeah. On a, I want to say it's like a $16 million budget. That's a huge success. That's huge. Oh, and yet yeah. somehow it gets noted as this failure in film history, which I don't get. Not Star Wars, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that, and I think we're, we're going to get into it too, it's a narrative failure. Like, it's, I think that is the biggest issue. That's what Vincent Camby's pointing towards, is that, like, these are beautiful movies, but there's holes all over the place in both of these stories. You know what? So. You can sure. shut up, Vincent Camby. Because... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could also argue that it's studio meddling that, obviously, we were never supposed to hear what the Skeksis were saying. Yes. They were supposed to just stock in a bunch of chirps and clicks. Which and, is uh... amazing to me. <laughs> As a kid. Yeah, I would have so, been like, ah. I, I mean, I don't know. It's it's it, very interesting. And I also think that it's fascinating because, I mean, most of these movies are – now I think that they're pretty much fully reclaimed. Yeah. But in my youth, a lot of these were like cult films. Yeah. And part of the reason they're cult films, I think, is uh, studios – push them so hard on television and on video to try to make up the money they feel that they lost that we were showed them constantly so something yeah these movies were just constantly playing something like beastmaster there's a beastmaster tv show there's the sequels it's just like don't you feel that you know yes i agree with you like they were very front and center at a vhs rental Mm -hmm. store um and you're right they were always on tv i think probably my initial copies of both of these films was were filmed off television um don't you feel like once you saw them, though, you fell in love? Like, I don't think it was just like, oh, yes, yeah. they pushed it on me and then I became yeah. addicted. <laughs> like, like, a, yeah. a, like how a drug dealer works. But this is also <laughs> the realm. We've talked about this weird limbo that exists in the 70s and 80s that did not exist in the 90s and 2000s. The concept of the family movie, where there really yeah. was something for everybody, even though mm-hmm. the younger kids, like, say, under the age of seven would be totally scarred by it. But it would still <laughs> be okay to show it to your children. E.T. would fall into that category. Things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. both of these very, like, I mean, definitely Legend is not for kids, especially Mm-mm. the version that they originally Mm-mm. intended. But I can see a lot of people renting this and watching this with their children because it yeah. has this world of fantasy and there's this assumption that like unicorns are for children, even though in this case, they definitely are not. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, it's right. and uh, Like we're fairly new to the PG-13 idea. Mm-hmm. I think at least Legend kind of pushes it. Yeah, it's weird. It's just trying to find that. And I mean, I think it's still happening. People still are like, you know, where where is the line for a kids movie? Because yeah. obviously Disney knows you got to kill people. So <laughs> you just, well, where do you go? We'll with get that? into that when we talk about our first movie. Because on paper, Labyrinth should be perfect. It should be perfect. Like Brian Froud, illustrator of the gorgeous, haunting, and deeply rude fairies series of books, designed the creatures. Uh, Jim Henson and his workshop brought those creatures to life. The situations they found themselves in were written, well credited to. We're going to get into that. Terry Jones of Monty. 
python and the creatures allied with and against future oscar winner 14 year old jennifer connelly and the whole world was commanded and soundtracked by david bowie at the height of his 80s powers oh and there's a farting bog a hospitable worm and a scary cat sheepdog named ambrosius adult me was honestly hesitant to rewatch this for the podcast or for the tv series because to five-year-old me this movie is perfect and labyrinth is kind of what taught me that movies were magic so as we go into this please know that i am deeply deeply biased on the actual quality of this film <laughs> so i would so i would like to echo that bias yeah i feel exactly the same Go ahead and take this out of my hands. I did try to show this to my small person. Um, we had a debate on whether or not that was appropriate. And uh, we were like, okay, we'll, we'll show them the pictures of the creatures and kind of explain the plot a little bit and see where we're at. And they were fascinated by David Bowie as the Goblin King. They were like, who's that? That's the Goblin King? Ooh. And I was like, all right, we got some cool stuff coming up. But they took a couple minutes after looking at the goblins and went, you know what? Too scary. Not for me. So we did not, we did not end up watching it together. But the rewatch, I'm glad I rewatched it with adult eyes. I'm, I, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I did it. So before we start, if someone somehow has not seen the film Labyrinth, let's uh, talk about what it's about. Let's do a quick plot summary. Alicia, let's throw this one to you. 14-year-old girl played by Jennifer Connelly, who looks stunning. Um, yeah. Like she, <laughs> she was cast out of a, a pool of amazing actresses, including like Helena Bonham Carter and Mia Sarah, who we're going to talk about, um, because she looked so adult-like despite her years. Mm -hmm. She lives with her father and stepmom. Not a big fan of the stepmom. Yeah. She's forced into a babysitting situation with her dad's new infant. And she she's very theatrical. We see in her bedroom very early in the film, and I only noticed this as an adult and not as a child, that her mother, her birth mother, is a very famous actress, doesn't live with her. She obviously idolizes her. You actually see images of an actress who's supposed to be her mother with David Bowie, mm -hmm. David David Bowie, not Gareth or Jareth David David Bowie. Um, so we kind of get an idea that like she she wants to be an actress herself. She idolizes her mom. So a theatrical little kid, as I was as well at <laughs> 14, over-dramatizes everything, super spoiled, really mad that she has to stay home with her, her like, under-the-age-of-one infant half-brother. So she offers him up to the Goblin King. Um, thinking, <laughs> like you I, do. <laughs> like you do. Assuming that this is just her kind of play-acting as her parents are on a date. You know, it's pretend. What I love about Labyrinth is it it doesn't, it just gets to the point. Like when she's doing this elaborate like speech, like Goblin King, Goblin King, take this child. We think it's going to wait a while before we actually see if the Goblin King exists. And it doesn't, it like within the first 10 minutes of the film, it cuts to the to the goblins, to the Muppets. Not to the king yet, mm -hmm. but to the my some of my favorite Muppet creatures ever. These little like slapstick goblins. And they're listening and uh, they're like, ah, oh, she's not saying the words right. And then finally she says them right. They come into the bedroom, steal the baby. David Bowie shows up in full Goblin King grandeur, um, kind of entices her and is like, you're going to have to, you can get your little brother back, despite you clearly not wanting him back. Um, you can get him <laughs> back if you can beat my labyrinth, like get through the labyrinth that he's created in the Goblin City. Uh, and thus she embarks on that, despite not really like being conflicted. Like she really wanted to get rid of this little brat. Um, and she does, but she kind of maybe realizes that that's wrong. So if there, there isn't much of a plot to this film. I mean, it really is set pieces that she work, as she works her way through the labyrinth. But if there is an overarching sort of lesson or narrative, it's, you know, think about being a spoiled 
confused 14, 15 year old girl and how you know adulthood is coming upon you and all the confusion that is kind of wrapped up in that, that you're not a child anymore. You're like an early, early teenager. You're about to become an adult. How do you deal with adult responsibilities? And so that's sort of what all the challenges within the labyrinth force her to work through that if she, you know, has confidence and just stops from it and calms down and thinks things through that she will get through it. She is also sexually enticed by David Bowie. As, and I'm going to say, a lot of boys talk about like Farrah Fawcett being their first sort of experience with masturbation or like with <laughs> arousal. A girl of a certain age, especially me being born in 1983. <laughs> David if, Bowie. If you saw Labyrinth at, a, let's say, in the late 80s, early 90s, this was probably your first experience <laughs> of like, Wait, what is this? What is this? What are these feelings? I'm not supposed to have these in a children's film. No, I'm 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 there with you. David Bowie is extremely attractive in this film and intentionally so. And they did their best <laughs> yes. to make him a rock star. And one of the things I think a lot of people, I definitely miss this as a child, and I'm sure in the 80s a lot of people miss this too. This is also a dark fairy tale about grooming and yeah. about older men um, who are training younger women and gaslighting them and like, look at everything I did for you. He literally has a song about gaslighting where yeah. he's actively gaslighting her in an Escher painting. And watching it again, I was like, what an incredible message using an actual rock star to be like, watch out for this shit because it's not okay. And a child too. Like Jennifer yeah. Connelly gets the role. She's filming it at 14. I think it's released. Mm. She's maybe 15 or 16 at most. So this is truly, this is an adolescent. This isn't an instance which I think would happen now where you cast, you know, a 21-year-old actress who looks 14. Like, Agreed. So, like yeah. on, what's that terrible sitcom? No, it's not terrible. The family one with Sophie Vergara. I'm always like shocked. Oh, modern family. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like all the kids are actually in their 30s. And you're like, <laughs> how is that possible? Yeah. And I also think that they go out of their way to make her shy like like it's about essentially becoming mature and like like accepting your own maturity and they make her childish like they make her an unlikable character i yeah. i was gonna say I, yeah. my friend's kids tried to watch it and they didn't they were like "Ooh, will the goblins be too scary and they didn't even get to the goblins because their kids were so upset by how mean she was to her little brother <laughs> yeah. and they were like i don't want to watch this i, I, <laughs> I don't want to watch this my woman. little brother like in real life mm. <laughs> very mean <laughs> and he was you know and this was a relatable relatable content for me sure. even at like nine years old no i agree and especially the fact that this is a step parent right and yeah. like this is an example yeah. of a step parent where like obviously the family dynamic has not coalesced the way it should and alicia you mentioned the stuff in the background about her mother being an actress, etc. Mm -hmm. Until I saw the 4K version, I didn't know that was there because, like you, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 because like you, I, I watched this off like a bad VHS, and you yeah. can't see that stuff. But watching 4K versions, you now see, oh, this world they've built. There's, you can yeah. see all the creatures are all stuffed animals are, are all there. Room, yeah, yeah. all the different references and labyrinth, and it's wild. It's not just um, so she has like the headshot of David Bowie with her mom taped to her mm -hmm. mirror on her vanity. There's also a scrapbook that I never noticed that's beside the book, uh, Marie Sendak's mm -hmm. Where the Wild Things Are. You actually see pages where she has made her own scrapbook dedicated to her mother and this character that David Bowie plays sort of off camera. Yeah. So when we think about this as a sexual fantasy, keep in mind, and this was way above me as a kid, this yeah. is kind of horror I mean, I don't think they're married, but like a stepdad figure or, you know, her mother's boyfriend or her mother's creative partner, someone that her mother gets mm -hmm. photographed with all the time. And the tabloids write about her and him. And this is who she's fantasizing about, who's going to take her away from all of this. That's yeah. dark. I think <laughs> <Very> <laughs> yeah. complicated. Yeah. 
I believe like uh like there's uh, we're we're going to talk about it but there's like a mess of like what this plot was and how this script went and I believe at one point it was meant to be a bit of a Wizard of Oz thing yes. where that character was a character uh, and you knew that he was the Wicked Witch and the lady on the bike. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Cam, I think this is actually the perfect place to take us into this because the making sure. of this is, and the reason why the narrative is kind of like, sorry, what's happening? Now there's this, now there's giant mm-hmm. fire creatures. Um, let's start at the very beginning of how this was conceived. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, it's it's all almost hard to find the beginning. The beginning is essentially that, Brian Froud, who we talked about, had the, you know, he started working with Jim Henson after the huge success of his book Fairies. He designed all the stuff in Dark Crystal. Uh, after the huge failure of Dark Crystal, Jim Henson was very frustrated, but he was like, Brian, I want to do another one. Like, let's do it. And obviously, Jim Henson, imagining him frustrated, he's almost a Mr. Rogers type. <laughs> so it's like, gosh darn like, it. <laughs> yeah, gee whiz, let's do another movie. Uh, <laughs> he's also like psychotically focused. Um, <laughs> So he gets Brian Froud. They start off, as you pointed out, thinking about Indian mythology and eventually go between themselves. Like, we don't know anything about it. <laughs> no, which thank God they just they figured out we don't know yeah. anything about Indian mythology. Stay Maybe we lanes. shouldn't make our Stay movie about lanes. that. Mm, yeah. Yes. And so then uh, one of them's like goblins. I, I also and... just quickly, I love the fact that they um, were like, okay, what was wrong with the Dark Crystal? Why didn't people connect? No humans. This one's got to yes. have humans. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like, well, humans. And so, yeah, essentially they have this goblin idea. Brian Froud draws this painting of a baby because they're like Traditionally, goblins take babies, uh, so it's this baby surrounded by goblins, uh, which is essentially the, like, dance magic dance sequence he, he painted. Uh, and from there, they he just, just, like, make a ton of paintings. It's a fantasy film. Uh, they get uh, Dennis Lee, uh, Canadian poet mm-hmm. Dennis Fraggle Lee, Rock. Uh, to Fraggle write Rock, Fraggle Rock. Well, there's a lot of Fraggle Rock through this. He writes uh, what ends up being essentially a novella, which... They're all relatively pleased with, actually. Then they get Terry Jones. Terry Jones has approached Jim Henson to create creatures for Eric the Viking. Uh, Eric the Viking, the book, somebody's daughter read it and was like, Jim, you should make this. Uh, So he was like, okay, Terry Jones has the right sensibility. I think it was Lisa. Yeah, maybe. Lisa or Heather. I'm trying to think whose daughter was that age at the time, but it's probably his. So anyway, he met with Terry Jones over Eric the Viking and was like, would you like to do this fantasy sort of things? We obviously now know that Terry Jones is a fantasy freak himself. He takes Dennis Lee's thing and kind of thumbs through it, says he takes two ideas from it and tosses it out pretty much entirely. I will say all of these true stories, very apocryphal, very changing person to person. So it's it's hard to tell. And depending on what uh, point in that person's life you are asking them, they have different ideas, especially Terry yeah, Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then Terry Jones writes it up. He mocks the novella. Apparently his was just a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of sketches <laughs> that still were not a script. They bring in another fraggle person, Laura Phillips. Uh I am also going to say my pet theory is they they have these two guys batting it back and forth and then they i think very pointedly bring in two women uh so i think that they are also uh developing the character Mm -hmm. at the center of the film which is a girl Mm -hmm. uh so laura phillips comes in she apparently does a lot of the structure she really turns it into a script uh they claim it was not funny (laughs) so then Elaine May appears, as Brian Henson says, in the night. Too. Pod, podcast favorite, <laughs> Elaine May. Literally, she flies in secretly. Yeah, podcast favorite, Elaine May, comes to Jim Henson's house in the middle of the mm-hmm. night. Apparently lives at his house for like a mm-hmm. week. 
uh, and produces a script that they say is funnier. They just I will say like other of food under the door for her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wouldn't want to mess with her. Yeah, you don't know if she has a gun under her pillow. <laughs> I, I think Elaine May thing. the reason why Elaine May would maybe be chosen for this project because I've tried to wrap my head around this, um, and it's not really mm. until recently because she's never credited. Even on IMDb, yeah. there's so many things that she was a script yeah. doctor for that she's not credited. But she had done Tootsie, and she was brought in on Tootsie to bring a female perspective, a little bit to Dustin Hoffman's character, but not really, more to, like, Terry Garr and inadvertently mm-hmm. Bill Murray's yeah. side characters, uh, and did a really good job with those and fleshed them out. So mm-hmm. I, I think there was, like, kind of a brand that she had going. She wasn't allowed to work in Hollywood at this point. Okay, this would have been, like, 84, so, like, Ishtar hasn't happened mm-hmm. yet. She's really there to bring a female perspective to films. So that is interesting to me because I could tell by this point they are struggling with the perspective of Jennifer, the character that would become Jennifer yeah. Connelly's character. I have also seen other interviews. Brian Henson says it's, it, that it was joke punch-up. Yeah. I've seen other interviews saying she was there to humanize the characters, uh, which makes sense. I would also say, as uh, you are much more an Elaine May expert than I uh, but I feel like, yeah, you definitely see her fingers all over the fact that Jennifer Connelly's character is like a dislikable protagonist gotcha. who you nonetheless root for. Yeah, she's dislikable and that's... a really fleshed out character because that's how yeah, I yeah. acted at 14. I thought everything should be totally. handed to me. I was a total bitch. Like that, I, I yes. watched this as an adult and like, did this film train me to be like that? Because <laughs> I watched it when I was little? Or is this just a very accurate portrayal of a middle-class teenage girl who wants everything? Totally, yeah. I mean, she's just, like, lightly spoiled. <laughs> it's not too wild. And I will also say the other thing that I think is very Elaine May is how quickly it starts. Yeah, yeah. What Great you're talking point. about, that, like, it's totally pared down. Like, I think she would say, don't write a thing about the mother and the whatever. Have a couple of photos. Get those goblins in there. Just get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah just get straight to the goblins. Um, I mean, th- Jim Henson talks about uh, Terry Jones's draft didn't reveal the Goblin King till, like, the midway through the third what? act. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> He's like, uh, Goblin King first 15 minutes, yeah, please. Yeah, and that, that draft, you don't even get to go to the Goblin City until, like, yeah. I don't even know if you got there. They, Terry Jones thought it was important to oh, not show uh, yeah. because it would keep yeah. it mysterious. Whereas it was like, if we're paying yes. for David Bowie to write original songs, David yeah, Bowie must to be David Bowie. in the film throughout. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. And, and so anyway, the, the line may happens. Uh, it goes back to Terry Jones. And then this is, I think, the most confounding is depending on how you hear from Terry Jones, he either went back to an earlier draft and rewrote it, or he also says that he he's the sole credited writer. Mm-hmm. He says that he feels fairly divorced from the final film. I don't know whether that is because of Laura Phillips and Elaine May, or because, I mean, the other thing is Muppet people are notorious improvisers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think that you can really sit down if you were a maniac and choose joke by joke what is Elaine May and what is Terry yeah. Jones' style. Like, I think the the heads that go like, beware, wait, I want to say my thing. Don't pay any attention to them. They're just false alarms. You get a lot of them in the labyrinth, especially when you're on the right track. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, shut up. I'm sorry, just doing my job. Well, you don't have to do it to us. Beware, forget it. Like that is very yes. Terry Jones. I think the fact that every time uh, they talk about Hoggle, they miss say his name is very Elaine May. Hello, Hedgewart. Hogwart. Hoggle. Hoggle. I think calling him Hogwart, calling him Humpback or whatever <laughs> yeah. is that seems more like her. Yeah, 
So it's like it's it's a mess, but I also know that like uh, George Lucas says Yoda was barely written the day they shot, yeah. and that was just Frank Oz and Irvin Kershner improvising and coming up with what Yoda was like. My God. At the end of the day, one of the reasons I love this movie so much, and what I've held on to, is the moments, like the little individual jokes that <laughs> have just killed me. The hat is like one of my favorite things. The way forward is sometimes the way back. Hmm. Hey, will you listen to this crap? Mm. Will you oh, oh, please okay. be All right. quiet? All right. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Sorry. The worm is one of my favorite can things, we talk and these about are like the worm. Of course, we can talk about sure. what the worm, and these are just like little, like maybe two minute moments, two minute moments, but they're yeah. so memorable and so quotable to me. I mean, it's so stimulating. Being your hat is fucking funny. Yeah, and again, that could be just off the cuff. Okay, so then we've talked about David Bowie. At what point does David Bowie come in? Because I know he was not choice number one, and he had to be fought for, yeah, weirdly. Yeah, well, I mean, this is also all over the place, because Jim Henson went to his children and said, Children, who is cool? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was kind of like, he was thinking about Sting, who you know, was sense. a pretty significant yeah. actor at the time. Well, and he was coming off uh, Dune, too, because Dune, Dune is... Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah obviously... Uh, it would, arguably, this film might be too horny with Sting. <laughs> <laughs> he was—he already had a famous cod piece, but uh, yes, he was kind of thinking of Michael Jackson, which is insane. Uh, but which is insane. But Brian Henson is like, I was a deep in the dyed wool new romantic, and I was like, it must be David which Bowie. Which makes sense for this film. Like, I literally cannot imagine Michael. I'm what a different, different yeah. film with Michael Jackson, and the fact that like you want a romantic lead, and there's nothing romantic yeah. about Michael Jackson. I'm sure some oh, people yeah, find yeah. him very attractive, but that's you know, there's, he's just yes, not a sex symbol. It, that is even a thing that Jim Henson said. It is it, Michael Jackson was a to him a children's performer, and uh, uh, David Bowie was an adult performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the funniest story you hear is David Bowie talks about, you know, Jim Henson, I think, showed up maybe on the Sirius Moonlight tour mm-hmm. just backstage one day with a stack of Brian Pratt's drawings. And he was like, you are the Goblin King. <laughs> and David Bowie's like, sure, you know, I like kid stuff. I would like to do another kid's thing. Didn't he say, I've already like, done the laughing gnome, so I can just do this? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Just go full and I think on. some of the, we've talked about this on the podcast, like with our episode on The Hunger, and I think 1983, he also does the Nagisa mm. Oshima film, Merry Christmas, mm. Mr. Lawrence. Like, he clearly was looking to shed some of this, like, really serious, dour, dark roles, and then ended up landing mm. in a very serious, <laughs> dark, sexually menacing, yeah. terrifying role, which I love. Oh, yeah. And it's also fascinating because to hear David Bowie tell it is another one of those ones where it's like he agreed to it. Jim Henson disappeared for years and he never heard anything. And then it was like, ring, ring, uh, time to be the goblin. <laughs> he was like, huh? yeah. okay, yeah, that, exactly. That itself is a bit like fairy tale. Like the time yeah. has come. <laughs> Report I, to set then, for but, your contest. I think it's really important too. It's not just like, okay, you're the, you're the goblin king and you're going to be, it's not a little character. Mm. You are top build. You are throughout no. the whole film. It was free reign on all songs. There was no yeah. Yeah, no production or studio intervention on the music. These are David Bowie songs. I, I've seen people kind of question whether they're David Bowie songs because, you know, they're for a kid's film. These are David Bowie songs. These are quintessential yeah. to me David Bowie songs. And Jim Henson had, had such success with this strategy with someone like Paul Williams giving Paul Williams full reign. Just, you know, mm-hmm. he's not going to intervene on these songs and look at how many Oscar nominations that led to for things like Rainbow Connection and yeah. really, really famous Muppet yeah. songs. Dance, Magic Dance. If I'm feeling down... Even though, like, that is a song about stealing a baby. Um, it's so good. Like, it, 
I understand the criticism that this is too music video-y because of David Bowie interludes like that. I don't care. Like, no, it's perfect. It's per- and it makes sense. Tonally, it's perfect. I, the minute I watch, like, I, mm-hmm. I watched the trailer today just to be like, okay, what? how did they cut this thing? Mm-hmm. And, like, the minute any of that music starts playing, I go on Spotify and I load up the album and I have to listen yeah. to the whole thing. Like, it's 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 so good. And it's very, like, David Bowie of that period. Like, I'm sorry, I got to get yeah. into my nerd here because he's, like, Let's Dance is 83. So that was, like, his big commercial hit. That's what brought him mm-hmm. back. Critically, not so much. But, like, you start getting into, like, 84 uh, is um, Tonight and, like, his biggest hit off that was loving the alien even though tonight is a duet with tina turner and it didn't do quite as well no one remembers that album exactly and that's unfortunate and then he really doesn't come back until black tie white noise in 93 and like labyrinth is almost entirely skipped over which is so weird because it's so catchy like i think it's one of his most commercially viable albums can we talk Mm. about one of the lyrics in there which i get in my head all the time which is you remind me so the main lyric is you remind me of the babe and the goblins respond like babe from the white or something like that and he's like hoodoo voodoo which i was like who even as a child I was like what fascinating lyrics <laughs> then as an adult and cam can you remind me were you at that particular nitrate film festival when they showed no i was not okay. so there's a nitrate film festival in rochester that i go to when it's not covid and they show the classic 1947 film although it's not that classic because i hadn't actually seen it with Cary grant and kind of shirley temple in her first adult role called The Boxer and the Bobby Soxer. Or sorry, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. He just pulled the dialogue straight from that film. So watching it in a theater with, I I think, around 300 or 400 people, Cary Grant says, you remind me of the man, instead of babe, man. And Shirley Temple says, what man? He says, hoodoo, voodoo. Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? Voodoo. Do what? Remind me of a man. The whole audience went like, what? Was like, what? Like, Where did everyone, this come from? Anyone of a certain age, their brain was going, that's Labyrinth. That This is what? Like, those are the lyrics from The Magic Dance is this 1947 lesser known Cary Grant film, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. So, I mean, that's pure that's David wild. Bowie. That's, that's something that no one yeah. could really intervene. Like, he writes that. It gets performed. They're just like, fine. Totally. <laughs> like, and fine. I mean, it's like the, the like... Uh the improv of it all because that's also mm-hmm. you know they're talking about that that set i think wait, i did a thing on hollywood suite about it it's like that set had chickens it had 50 mm-hmm. puppets yeah. it had marionettes it had and a people real in goblin like yeah. 12 goblins yes. like goblin small people in goblin suits like human actors running around. being flown around this is jennifer Connolly's first uh, thing and she's having to work on a switch yeah. set. that's why i'm also fascinated by that because her, her early movies are like uh, phenomena <laughs> where love. she's covered in bugs and stuff this uh, seven minutes in heaven which we have on Hollywood Sweet, which is a, a cute Degrassi thing but yeah th- it's very fascinating I also am super fascinated she was a model at the time uh, her modeling career somehow got her a brief uh, recording artist career in Japan at she like has, 13 uh, yeah she has two pretty high ranking pop songs about when Labyrinth is released in Japan so the yeah. film is actually huge in Japan because she has this uh, song called Monologue of Love uh, which is uh, in phonetic Japanese <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's like a folk song it's like a Christmas related album too it- it's very weird but she's so good and it's also fascinating because Jim Henson when he talks about her he's like number one she's amazing and obviously you don't need to say she's amazing because she had a continuing career for the rest of her life she must have been super professional to be doing oh yes young and all very difficult this was difficult for bowie to figure out how to to work with puppets imagine being 
14 years old and trying to wrap your head around this. I've heard her do in- contemporary interviews where she says she likes working with the puppets better than the humans. Yeah, I believe yeah. that. And I mean, <laughs> the other thing that Jim Henson admits is he's like, uh, when you're writing a puppet movie, you're like, the puppet does this, the puppet does that. And then he's like, <laughs> we get on set with Jennifer Connelly and I'm like, oh, she is constantly doing stunts. <laughs> he is like a, a less professional actress would have been in full rights to be like, stop dumping me down holes and in the water and I don't want to be on a crumbling bridge. He's like, <laughs> the, the whole movie, she's just... stench. Yeah. yeah. He's like, it's just constantly stunts if you really think about it. And he's like, we really pushed her to the limit mm-hmm. and she was professional the whole way. And when you think about the little people performers as well, mm. which there are several of them, but, uh, the main little person performer being Sherry Weiser, who's inside the Hoggle animatronic and mm. who's basically doing almost, uh, I'd say it's a third of the performance because you have someone doing the face, yeah. then Brian Henson is doing the voice, and then you have her doing the body of it. One of the little facts that I love is that the reason why he's always making those oh, 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 noises is because she kept having to open the mouth because that's how she can see. Yeah. Mm. So if you if you were acting against Hoggle... You would see these pair of eyeballs, which this whole film is about the uncanny. So like there's so much uncanniness just in the production of this. And I think it's Brian Henson actually controlling the animatronic face through a Waldo and doing the voice. So you would also have the voice coming. You know, he's on set doing the voice. Um, So the voice is coming from a different direction or a different area. But you have to then act as though it's coming out of the mouth while there's these two little eyeballs looking at you. And then speaking (laughs) to the uncanniness, there's a great YouTube clip that I really want people to go see because it's so beautiful. It's the Royal Command performance of Labyrinth in 86 with Prince Charles and Diana meeting uh, Ludo, the the giant Mm -hmm. um, creature. And she is so creeped out by Ludo. She's just (laughs) making these faces like, what the hell am I looking at? yeah. And she's trying to be gracious because she's freaking Diana. But when David Attenborough makes the puppet curtsy to her, she like does like a beeline away <laughs> from it like, to get as far as possible. And she's just like, nope, 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 nope. My favorite Ludo fact is uh, there the one of the guys who was puppeteering and the voice of it was an Australian puppeteer, a, a second generation puppeteer named Ron Muick. And you might know him as a hyper realist sculptor. He's got the guy who essentially popularized those sculptures that look like real people uh with his he had one in 1996 called dead dad which is quite famous uh but yeah it's just it's a very weird side note that ludo's voice (laughs) is also an incredibly famous visual artist and sculptor another side note coming back to that london premiere where princess diana and prince charles were in attendance apparently according to jim henson prince charles came up to him and was like he really enjoyed the film he wasn't the average audience member. He wasn't the average critic. He really liked it. And he told Jim Henson his favorite part was the farting scene. He yeah, just kept yeah, laughing. Amazing, He's like, I just amazing. thought that was so delightful, the fart. <laughs> I mean, that's, a great scene. A, that's what inbreeding does to you. And I'm not taking that out of the podcast. <laughs> no. It's just a fascinating, incredibly complex movie, which I think is yeah. like the, the technical complexity is interesting. The fact that Jim Henson had the power i think he teamed up with george lucas to produce the movie partially to allow him to do to give him like breathing room Mm -hmm. because he was kind of a guarantor he prepped for like a year like what with these movies it's so fascinating because they did so much rehearsal and so much conceptualizing 
And I think that kind of stuff is unfortunately totally lost. But I also think it's like you could say like, ah, well now, you know, CGI has ruined everything. But this is also a very early CGI test because Jim Henson loved CGI. It's the first, like what they call the first photorealistic animal from Mm -hmm. CGI. But it's like, yeah, you need to keep in mind that Jim Henson loved technology. Yeah. uh, yeah. There's so much in this movie. Like the great thing about this movie that is like different from a lot of the other films where we're like, come on, obscure interviews anywhere. (laughs) Like let's look on archive.org. This one, there's just so much information. We could do like a three. You could do a whole series on Labyrinth. We, We could do the whole episode just on the worm. Like you yeah. could just oh, take it, that two okay. minute. The worm is amazing. Please, Alicia, let's yeah, get into the worm. I promised you. I don't have anything analytical or <laughs> I, I just, it both as a child and as an adult, that little worm, it's one of the, probably the smallest the Muppets ever built. There are some other worms that are used in Sesame Street. But like this is a really tiny um, puppet that's performed by uh, Karen Prell coming off of Fraggle Rock. She's red in Fraggle Rock. And the voice is Timothy Bateson, who's like a pretty famous British actor that line plays in my head all the time like hello hello did you say hello no i said hello but that's close enough you're a worm aren't you yeah that's right you don't by any chance know the way through this labyrinth do you oh me no i'm just a worm oh come inside meet the missus Every time I'm at a castle in Europe, which isn't that frequent, but when I am, <laughs> that line where it's like, oh, if she'd gone that way, she would have been led straight to the castle. It's like just <sighs> such a, I don't know, I think if we're in a really hard economic times right now, but if you can figure out how to make a worm themed thing on Etsy, it's probably going to sell out. That would yeah. be my like economic plan. For oh, anyone. the worms. It's got the big eyes. It looks like Baby Yoda or, or I don't know. I don't yeah. watch The Mandalorian. Gro- Grobu? Grogu. 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 Thank you. People are going to You don't have to watch The Mandalorian to know I don't Baby watch... Yoda's name. I... I am so busy. I'm sorry. I'm watching movies for this podcast. Yes, I am. So yeah. So I mean, that's 100%. That's like the same kind of thing. There's a lot of histories on the worm online that I would encourage (laughs) listeners to like, like a really deep dive into how the worm was made. Um, Karen Prell is one of my favorite Muppeteers in, and she's still with them. Um, Yeah, I just want to, I just want to give a shout out to the worm. I think he really holds the film together. Oh, I was just going to say, there's so much to shout out. Great vests. Jennifer Connelly's wonderful vest. How about uh, the chili down with madness? The the scary that's what scared me as children as sure. a child. The fire guys. The yep. fire guys who take their heads off and throw them around were scarier to me than like the creatures that I think are meant to be designed to be more horror based. Mm. Like these were like I think it was probably my first experience of the uncanny as a child of like And they're so frantic and so frenetic and unpredictable. There's something really upsetting about them. Sure. Yes. I mean, they poke their own eyes out. That was my problem as a kid. That's fun. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, I think that's probably where we should leave it for this <laughs> is poking our own yeah. eyeballs out. Yeah. Um, so uh, when we come back, we're going to look at a movie that made Time Magazine critic Richard Corliss write in his reviews opening. A long time ago, in a conference room far, far away, it was ordained that sword and sorcery movies would be the next big thing. Just imagine crossing the fantasy worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien and George Lucas, mythic reverberations, megabucks, didn't work. Was he being too harsh? Nah, that's coming up after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. $25 million. That's over $73 million in today's money. That's how much Ridley Scott was given to make the 1986 fantasy epic Legend. By 1986, Ridley had already proven he could create memorable and tactile worlds, as well as incredibly profitable films, with Alien and Blade Runner. So with this new financial investment, Ridley was tasked to create an incredible fantasy world on the sound stages of the UK's iconic Pinewood Studio, on the 007 soundstage. And he and his team did, building comprehensive enchanted forest sets and vivid burning hellscapes. Weirdly, it wasn't the hellscapes that ended up burning that soundstage to the ground. It's a story that involves rogue pigeons, but we're going to get into that. But first, let's get into Legend, that has ironically been mostly forgotten. All right, Cam, Legend, what's this one about? Sure, I mean, it is a classic fairy tale, essentially. It is weirdly, we'll say that there, we'll get into it, there's a million cuts. I'm going to talk about the director's cut, because that's the one that has a plot that makes sense. <laughs> and that's the one Alicia and I watched. Yeah. I'd never seen yeah. this movie before. Uh, and I would really, really emphasize to listeners... Please watch the director's cut. Yeah, you haven't seen yeah. it so you can judge this film properly. Yeah, uh, we'll judge the film with the plot <laughs> rather than uh, <laughs> the the other cuts essentially cut like a little out of every scene in a way that just ruins the narrative. So it, it, the plot is basically that darkness, this supreme evil, uh, wants darkness always because uh, he hates the light. It is his weakness. Uh, and he realizes that the way to get that is to kill all the unicorns. So he tasks Blix, his vilest goblin, to go and kill these unicorns. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Princess Lily... Uh, is hanging out in the forest, uh, played by Mia Sarah, uh, and she has a flirty relationship with Jack, who is kind of a you know a forest dwelling boy, woodland, <laughs> one of those woodland sprites. I, I yeah, yeah, he's. I think he's meant to be a human. Yeah, but he's yeah. just a like a Robin Hood, and he kind of hangs out with the fairies. He's your regular forest child. Yeah, <laughs> that's just what they do. He, yeah. he, they did talk about making him green skinned, so there is kind of a Jack of the Woods thing. But I uh, think his full name is Jacko the Green. Yeah. I think that's the full <laughs> name of the character. Yeah, okay. In their flirtations, uh, he takes her to see the unicorns. She touches a unicorn, which sends the world out of balance. Allows one of them to be seemingly killed, uh, and from there, it's essentially a split story where Jack is trying to find Lily and Lily is trying to make up for the fact that one of these unicorns was seemingly killed by uh, both keeping the other unicorn safe uh, and eventually she gets captured by darkness and trying to do what she can from the inside uh, <laughs> to uh, to stop darkness from taking over entirely. If Labyrinth was like very Wizard of Oz in terms of its fantasy Legend is so 
like actual 19th century romanticism Mm -hmm. yeah i just it it overwhelms me that this film exists um it really is like true true fantasy like it's, it's hard fantasy like labyrinth might be soft fantasy this is like hard hard fantasy yeah, and I'm shocked I'd never seen this before. And the only reason I knew oh, about really? it was okay. because of the design of Tim Curry's outfit as Darkness, oh. because that is amazing, it's, and he looks so cool. It's a feat of engineering. It is. <laughs> Rob Bottin, who's in charge, who was, did all the prosthetic makeup, like, yes, and he worked with John Carpenter on The Thing, so, like, what a pedigree. Um, it's not, to me, I don't even think of it as makeup. It is, like, a design feat or an engineering feat like the Eiffel Tower. It's unbelievable, and for any, I'm sure every listener hearing this episode has seen at least a photo of Tim Curry as Darkness slash the Devil. Um, it's a character that, when I think about visual reference, I definitely think of like um, the Bald Mountain sequence of Fantasia. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Haxan, a silent film, witchcraft through, witchcraft through the ages from 1922. But this, to me, is the best depiction of the Devil or darkness or evil on screen i can't believe how scary genuinely and but also mesmerizing and alluring and how these real these prosthetics there's no cgi how these like practical effects could achieve this it's so effective he's also 13 feet tall on stilts on on stilts stilts. actually with the horns he is 13 (laughs) feet tall Tim Curry is 5'9". Like, it's yeah. one of those things where you're like, I've seen him in heels. I understand he's a larger man. He's only 5'9". <laughs> yeah. So when you yeah. think five, someone who's 5'9", being made 13 feet tall and having to give a performance, which he does, he acts the shit out of this like it's he does incredible. everything else. It's incredible. That's, I mean, if you're going to watch this movie, you watch it for him and for the other character actors because it's, I mean, Mia Sarah and Tom Cruise can bite it as far as yeah. I care. He won, but, he but won a Saturn great. Award for this, right? So we, we better this film as a financial failure, which it kind of was and a critical failure, but... It had, even in 1985, 86, more 86, it's released in North America in April of 1986. It had premiered in a very different version in late 1985 in England. So it gets, when you Google it, you're going to see 1985. We're calling it 1986 because that is when the majority of people saw it, and it's when it was really reviewed critically. I can't, like, it started winning things in, in 1986. Like, I, I, we're going to talk, talk about this as a disaster somewhat, but it's kind of not, just like Labyrinth, where it's like, these are... It's a misnomer in some ways. It's definitely like a a bigger infl- and, and and influence, I would say. And it's also kind of interesting because Ridley Scott, uh, like it's it's kind of one of his last until he comes back recently, like sci-fi fantasy mm-hmm. movies. He mm-hmm. he gets into uh, more realist films for a long time, and he actually said he he wanted to like quote unquote get this out of his system. He's like, I knew I really had a fantasy in me, and I I wanted to do it. The king of the director's cuts, and <laughs> it's mm-hmm. no different with this. Like, oh, and I mean, I Blade am also Runner fascinated. Uh, like people talk about like you know the the different cuts, and the cuts are, are often chalked up to studio meddling. And if you watch mm-hmm. the documentary on this film, he's like, no, no, no studio meddled. He's it was like, him. I did it, and he. Actually actually chalks it up to the fact that he did a screening of the dga and there was stoned people chuckling Mm -hmm. at the movie and he was like no 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 this is too serious he's like they don't get it americans don't get it and then he like ran and he cut it like crazy and he actually said that some studio people were like what are you doing it's not just that he cut it and the runtime is is substantially different between what was released in europe and the uk Mm -hmm. and what was released in the u.s and what is now the director's cut he completely rescored it and that Mm -hmm. to me has more impact than even cutting out bits of the narrative 
Um, so to appeal to an American audience, to these stoners that he yeah. encountered laughing at his film at a, a test screening, he uh, commissioned Tangerine Dream, the like pretty popular at the time synth band who had done the soundtrack or would do the soundtrack for, is it Top Gun? They do, No. Uh, what's the big like Days of Thunder? I can't remember which one they had done. To make this synth score, which in itself, so if you watch the U.S. cut, and probably if you grew up with this film the way I did, you definitely saw the Tangerine Dream uh, mm. version. It's not bad. It, the music itself is fine, but it's such a tragedy because the UK, the UK European version and now the director's cut has Jerry Goldsmith's score, which that man worked on this for years and considers it his greatest work. And I hadn't seen the film with the original music on it until recently, getting the director's cut in my hands. And it is it, it makes this film that seems like kind of an 80s pop culture thing in the U.S. version, a ballet. It's it's very Stravinsky-inspired. It's um, with, like, modern flourishes. The score is stunning. And something like the seduction scene with Mia Sara and the Black Goddess, when the Tangerine Dream scores on it, it's a music video, and it, it doesn't match the choreography. Watching it with the goldsmith, I'm like, oh, my God, this is actual. The choreography is made for the music and vice versa, and it's perfectly matched. I really have to emphasize this Jerry Goldsmith score is stunning and almost was completely lost. Like they really had to find in the archives the original version of this music to make the director's cut, which, you know, and I'm so glad it's restored this way. Um, I love mm -hmm. Tangerine Dream, but it, it's just, yeah. it's a different film. I, I, I work mostly in silent film and I can see one silent film with live accompaniment and I hate the film and then see a different score a year later and it radically changes the entire meaning of the film. And that's what happens with Legend. Yeah. Risky business is the one you're thinking yes, of. For yeah, thank you. Say, Sorry. Thank you. I, like, Tom Cruise. Dark, I, I named every other Tom Cruise film. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. But I, I mean, I also, uh, to emphasize, uh, just to reveal to you, Becky, if you don't know, the way they cut the movie is like, don't imagine. I mean, a usual when you're like the movie was cut way down, you just think full mm -hmm. sequences were pulled. Mm -hmm. But it's like Ridley Scott cut two minutes out of every sequence yeah, in a way everything. that really makes some of it nonsense. Like, I think the reason why people do like the American cut is that the Tangerine Dream and the truly nonsensical nature of it makes it dreamy and kind of like... Like, it's, it's a fantasy in a way that's like, oh, you know, it appeals to those stoners who, by the way, Ridley Scott says, nowadays I would just say, hey, assholes, get out of my screen. <laughs> He's like, I would just have them removed. <laughs> I don't removed. care if you didn't enjoy my four-hour cut of Kingdom yeah, of Heaven. <laughs> exactly. He, I would have them removed. But uh, it's, yeah, it's very interesting because I just feel like there's stuff like, like Blix, the character, is not really, he's just a goblin that's around. Here it's like Blix is like the third lead. Uh, and then also stuff like, I, I really, I, I might be misremembering, but to me, the American cut, Mia Sara does not have agency. She's just a damsel in distress. Absolutely. Whereas this one, it's very fascinating because she's very actively on her own quest uh, alongside Jack. And then it makes the tension towards the end where you don't know if she's been corrupted by evil or not so much better because you like you know that she probably has a secret plan all along and Jack's mm -hmm. gonna maybe shoot her with a damn arrow. <laughs> Grant your bride one wish this night. You have but to ask. I will stay here with you as you wish. But on one condition. Anything. I want to kill the unicorn. 
Well, this is one of those movies that when I read what was intended, I think I got it more and I respected what they were trying to do more, even though I don't think it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The narrative is one of the most important things to me. Like I can understand. I love I love effects. I love puppets. I love prosthetics. Like all that's really, mm-hmm. really cool to me. That's why I love horror. Um, but for me in fantasy, I need that like, OK, what is the what is the journey you are actually taking me along? Mm-hmm. Um, and from my understanding, this is intended to be a film about vices and people overcoming their vices. Mm-hmm. And so um, Mia Sarah has to learn to like curb her desires for things. You know, she has to cur- wor- work with her impulsiveness and biting her time and it's only in biding her time she's able to uh, to succeed jack has to learn what to love actually is and to get lust out of his system because he lusts for the mia sarah character but he does not love her and he has to learn what love is so it's overcoming whatever like vice you actually have to succeed i think speaking to that point and yeah i can see that and i have a similar thing where i love this film in theory and then every time i watch it i feel conflicted then i sleep on it and i just love it again Um, But the experience of watching it can be quite jarring. If you think about something like, and I never thought this would come up on the podcast, uh, Paradise Lost, like John Milton's Paradise Lost, (laughs) Mm. where you're looking at the world through the perspective of the devil. I think this entire film is actually through the perspective of darkness of Tim Curry's character, which explains why the purity of Mia Sarah's character and of Jack is a little bit one dimensional mm-hmm. because he sees the world as one dimensional. There's lightness and there's dark. He's dark. And I mean, his character is not one dimensional. My God. <laughs> that's <like the> most... <laughs> but that's also to the credit of how great Tim Curry is. He's yeah. one of those people that you pay him, he shows up and he makes your movie 40 times better than it yeah. was before. He's the most memorable part of oh, just yeah. about every film and, he's and in. And he was cast because of Rocky Horror. Like, we yes, should say yes. That. Like, they, they wanted him to be, I mean, we should say that, that this is, they toned down the sexuality significantly. I can't find her name, but there was a woman executive that apparently talked to Ridley Scott. She came in and she was elderly. She was one of the like first women executives in Hollywood. And he said she plopped down and she was like, you can't have the monster fuck the princess. <laughs> and then, so, the, yeah, but he was like, we wanted a, the sexiest person. And then he also said that he knew any version of the design would be heavily covered in makeup. So they needed somebody with an incredibly expressive face. And he said that that is Frankenfurter, right? Like making all those horny yeah. faces is yeah. exactly what they need. Yeah, like it's not even his eyes. He's got full, I think there's a there's mm-hmm. a behind the scenes sort of doc, but really Scott talks about how like they just eventually in conceptualizing with Rob Botin, um, these prosthetics, they just took away every part of Tim Curry. Like mm-hmm. first it was like, okay, well a little bit of your cheekbones are gonna be exposed. And it was like, no, we can't do that. We gotta plaster him up. And then it was like, okay, now we're gonna put you in full Scalero lenses. And he's like, yeah. all I have are my eyes left. And then he put the Scaleros in and was like, oh no, no, I get it. This looks yeah, great. This works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating. It's also like another credit to him that. He hated it. He's one of those people like Jim Carrey, too, that I think felt incredibly claustrophobic in that much makeup. He famously tore tore it off off and tore off parts of his skin. He had to soak in a bath for over an hour to get the spirit gum that was used as an adhesive soft enough that he could pull it. If he did it any, like if he rushed that, if he wanted to pull it off on set without that soaking bath. Yeah. He actually tore his skin off. Oh, yeah, yeah. In multiple... And I mean, the, the fascinating thing is that this movie went on to affect uh, it. When he played Pennywise, they wanted it to be a more elaborate character, but he had mm-hmm. in his contract from here on mm-hmm. out that he would not wear 
prosthetics like that so the that's Ridley why Scott claws. yeah exactly <laughs> so that's why pennywise is like a, a great performance i think because yeah. it is a much more traditional makeup it's him it's a guy in a clown makeup it's not it. yeah it's not a creature yeah. yeah that's a very good point i mean Which yeah it's terrifying yeah exactly. yeah and it's not it's not I, we're focusing a lot on darkness how can you not yeah there's so many terrifying oh my creatures God. Yeah. Um, Blix, his like kind of henchman, mm-hmm. who's played by um, uh, Alex Platon, mm-hmm. really given a bigger role in the director's cut. Thank God, really cut out of the U.S. theatrical. So I love seeing the director's cut. That prosthetic is insane. <laughs> like it's beautiful. Billy Barty is in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about him in the first um, in our episode on David Locust a little bit. You know, he is an actor that goes back to a child actor in the silent era. Like he was in Ben Turpin shorts. Um, he was he acted opposite M- Mickey Rooney and Mickey Rooney's like Andy Hardy days. Like it's wild. Well, I think so. Yes. But then also Mickey Rooney in the it's, it's complicated. There's some uncredited stuff in the 20s that he is in with baby Mickey Rooney, which is kind of So they go back that far. But it's also like no one's been a, com- able to confirm it because a lot of those shorts are lost. But um, yeah, he's so, so good as... I don't know, he's not, I guess he's, I don't know what kind of character he is. He's not a dwarf. He's, he's yeah, like, I mean, there's all, they're like brownies and pixies and sprites. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, I will say, he, it's funny to me that he essentially both, <laughs> they reuse the makeup and the character almost exactly in Masters of the Universe. Yes. When he's that little key master. That's <laughs> I'm just like, the voice is the same. The same. Yeah, Absolutely, it's almost totally right. the same face. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think that a lot of those performers, get a really fascinating showcase and and i mean i love the blix thing where blix is just a like a caricature of keith richards <laughs> there's there's a blix they're not line. <laughs> there's yeah. a blix line where um darkness shows up kind of unannounced and they're uh to kind of like you know figure out what his henchmen are doing because he's frustrated that the other unicorn hasn't been captured and i think darkness kills kills off or like mm. find out he's alive he like basically fries electrocutes one of the henchmen and blix just goes wow yeah <laughs> like, no it's is my, very funny it's my yeah. favorite lie it's just wow yeah. i hope we get a soundbite of that because it's like the the delivery and just having watched blix's like partner get murdered uh it's exactly how i feel about this film i'm just like wow yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I have to bring this up because this is kind of this is something that as I was watching this, I'm like 100% the fairy Una is Tinkerbell mm-hmm. from Hook, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Like mm-hmm. that's that's exactly the model for that. Okay, I thought so. Like it's it's got to be that same like thing. It's just they tried to make the Julia Roberts Tinkerbell more likable, but oh, Una yeah. is like I mean, is you, Tinkerbell. You see these influences visually because I think this is probably like the most visually arresting fantasy film of all it's time. stunning and, and you see these weird influences and actually there's a there's a, a miscategorized thing you'll see on the internet a fact that uh shigeru miyamoto was inspired for legend of zelda from mm-hmm. this film which wouldn't work time-wise uh mm-hmm. but you're kind of like oh and then people have actually said oh i think it's like a mistranslation and he was actually inspired for ocarina of time the n64 game which yeah. features both a ganon that turns into essentially darkness and a little fairy going like hey which is like wait <laughs> this is a fairy going hey you're I, right <laughs> as someone who grew up playing that game yeah i see yeah. that i also see like i i think we should mention this tom cruise is in the shortest shorts probably of his career and has the longest hair so it's like they were like okay have the two meet in the middle mm. so it does look a bit like links but uh yeah there's yeah. so much upper thigh 
which is something <laughs> that my, my partner Brendan Ross always brings up about this film. Like, there are close-ups of just like Tom Cruise's upper thigh where he's disembodied and you don't see his face, but I can tell it's his legs. I, yeah, it's so it's so it's so bizarre. <laughs> this yeah. film's so I mean, bizarre. I love it so much. Their relationship is very Link and Zelda too, where it's just like a princess <laughs> hanging out who meets a woods boy, <laughs> and the woods boy helps her out, but and he's dumb. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that the unicorn stuff coming back to fantasy mm-hmm. that the unicorn stuff those shots are beautiful they're done at Pinewood which we're going to talk about what happened to the soundstage but um, very elaborate sets building a whole forest inside Pinewood mm-hmm. Studios on the 007 soundstage where all the bonds were filmed up to that point um, you look like you're inside a snow globe like that really oh, is yeah. and especially in the unicorn sequences which I think some of those I think it had burned down by that point. So actually some of those are outdoors at some Mm -hmm. English estate. But um, he then goes and puts parts of the unicorn outtakes in Blade Runner, the (laughs) director's cut. Like he's just, yeah, trying to trace his genealogy of cut footage and where it all lands is fascinating. But I do (laughs) think Blade Runner and Legend are really intimately connected somehow. I just don't, other than this unicorn footage, there is a thread there. I just haven't been able to work it out yet. I think the release of this, too, is just so mishandled. So we talked about how 83 is, like, the year of Tom Cruise. Like, mm-hmm. he's just, yeah. like, bam, bam, bam. And then he goes across to the U.K. to do this. And there's a great interview he did with Cameron Crowe for Interview Magazine that's contemporary in, like, 86, right before Top Gun comes out. But he's gone to do this already. And this one also uh, has already come out. And he's kind of on the... the promotional trail for both films um at the same time because i think it's the same i think it's the same studio and Mm -hmm. so he is um he's like i specifically wanted to go to the uk because i was starting to get mega famous here and i didn't like it so i went to the uk Mm -hmm. and people didn't know who i was and that was great so i i had that anonymity again and then i was going to do this role that was completely different from anything else i'd done now they release this first and they knew top gun was coming out had top gun come out first he would have been such a megastar yeah. at that point that everyone would have gone to see this and genuinely would not have cared about the quality of it or what it was it was yeah. Ridley Scott Tom Cruise these are two of the biggest biggest names in the film industry it would have done way better but for some reason they sat on this and or some reason they released this first and did and waited it, for yeah. it has a complicated co-production distribution deal so in North America this is universal um but in the UK and in uh, I think in the UK it's Fox and then in Europe it's something else and then now depending on what cut of the film it is it has reverted back to the original single person who produced it like it's it's um I've tried to show this theatrically can't it's a mess yeah. <laughs> it's a total mess um and I don't want to show the US theatrical but even that we have we've had it on Hollywood Suite right Cam yeah yes. yeah we have yeah and I, I think we're getting it soon um as per requested but um I hope we get the director's cut. I realize I'm going to have to send an email about this, <laughs> just in recording this. Can we talk about this? The, the like, this this became almost one of the most tragic film shoots yeah. in terms of loss of life ever. And thank yeah. God it didn't. But can we can we give some background on that? Of course, let's get into the fire. Uh, before we do that, just quickly, I just want to say this was filming next door to Labyrinth at about Damn. the same time. They were in the same building. Can you imagine what that canteen was like? <laughs> Is that <laughs> true? Here's my thing, though, and I'm trying to fact check that. I saw, I read that too. Labyrinth is at Elstree Studios, 
And this is okay. Pinewood, and they're they not did side by do, side. No, no, no. So they did do stuff there. Here's yeah. why I know. Because okay. I listened to an interview with Brian Henson. Yeah. This is how he met USC, Mia? And no, no, no. No, he just they happened, didn't. No. He just almost ran her over. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she they're does not remember almost life. being run over. Brian he Henson remembers... and Mia Sarah are yeah. married, just so viewers know, but not from this film, apparently. He's like, uh, I almost ran over a beautiful girl in what looked like pajamas. <laughs> and then yeah. he's like, ah, oh, that's Mia Sarah. <laughs> then, yeah. yeah. Years yeah, so I think later, they, they did some. Married. I think they did some B unit stuff at Pinewood if stuff flowed over. So they okay. were there. Yes, it's just sense. not at the. Yeah, it's just yeah. at the same time something like that was happening. So which I, I mean, Pinewood, is, you often see great. Uh, what was the one that I just saw? It was Jack Nicholson and James. Oh, James Mason from. Uh, Murder by Decree visited yeah. Jack Nicholson on the set of The Shining because <laughs> they were just. I don't know if that was Pinewood, but it was two UK sets that were next. It was door. Pinewood. Shining's yeah. Pinewood. I'm pretty. Uh, and it's just a uh, silly him dressed as Watson on the Shining set. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, All right. Well, so, let's good. talk I'm glad, about I'm it. Glad we knew that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about this burning down because I kind mm. of love the fact that pigeons sounded the alarm, which oh. is just amazing to well, me. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's they filled the set with birds, uh, yeah. which was a fun idea to begin with. And it's also worth saying that this was not uh, psychotic on Ridley Scott's part. He said that they scouted the forest and you just don't have light in the forest. So yeah. they had to essentially mm -hmm. build a forest. You could, they couldn't get a dense fantasy style forest that you could light. Mm -hmm. um, so they built this forest. uh I, I you were saying that it's like gas buildup from various things maybe they don't really fully know what caused the fire but essentially somebody was like sitting there and uh all these birds started flying out because they they would leave the doors open because the other thing is you got to remember this is the 80s uh the isos were what they were you got to light the hell out of everything it so, was very hot super hot and it was summer too so the roof is metal it's basically an oven yeah and then you um, would have had like gaffers mm -hmm. up at the top normally like actually working and doing the lighting and then they broke for lunch thank god thank mm. god so this, this fire occurred during the lunch uh break and then yeah it's the security guard who was watching the soundstage who was like that's weird and watched hundreds of pigeons fly out of the building yeah. like with incredible urgency and then realized that the stage is on fire and it became a yeah. gas ball. Like it exploded. Yeah, yeah. It like really scary. super burnt down if you see it. I, my, the best recollection you can find, I think it's in the documentary, is Billy Barty being like, yeah. I was eating lunch and I saw all this smoke and I went, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if, if there's only one, I mean, this is the 80s, I'm sure it's safer now, although this stage burned down again uh, later on in, in its history. But uh, really, only one exit, you would have had hundreds of oh, people. Oh, yeah. If this occurred, there would not have been enough time to get out. Um, and you would have had anyone who was controlling the lighting at that top part of the stage would have been probably killed instantly in the explosion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, thank yeah, God. Thank Ridley God. Scott says as much that if any of them were in there, it would have been a massive loss of life. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, what Becky probably wants to talk about is the fact that Ridley Scott, they were like, Ridley, the stage is on fire. There's nothing we could do. And he went, oh. And then he's like, literally in his head, he's like, well... Uh, I could freak out about this for hours or I could just accept there's nothing I could do. And he's like, what is, what do I like to do to relax? And he's like, I am going to go play tennis. <laughs> yeah. He literally left <laughs> while the stage was on yeah. fire. Universal he's like, I'm going to go play tennis. They're worried that he's been killed. They're like trying to mm -hmm. contact him. He's on the tennis court. Luckily, everyone's safe. 
Um, yeah, self care king because he's like, no, well, yeah, he's I, need to, I need to do anything yeah. to de- de- stress. He's like, I cannot be a part of this massive fire <laughs> ruining my entire production. It's really sad because he had just what they were going to do after lunch. They had just set up the most elaborate tracking yeah. shot of the forest. Yeah, that was almost going to be like Disney Snow White, like in that it was like glass planes moving in different directions. It was going to be stunning, and then they had to break and rebuild the entire set, or then mm-hmm. film all alternative scenes there's like a castle they found that had a kind of english garden in the background that's just like really unfortunate and um but a testament to like how wondrous this film is for me oh, yeah. i will give it 100 percent. it is beautiful rob botin's creatures are amazing oh. however i will say i watched the 4k version of this and mm-hmm. unfortunately you can really see their prosthetics mm-hmm. however i do recognize if you were watching this on vhs or in a theater on a print you would not see that. That would not be there. But it's one of the unfortunate things about prosthetics in 4K that it's you can see the yeah. cracks, you can see there the strings, are, unfortunately. You know, I do I don't know enough about this 4K. It's not a restoration, it's just it's it's a digitization. I don't uh-huh. think there it was I don't think it was supervised by Ridley Scott. I don't think it's color timed by the cinematographer who may or may not still be living. Um if you can, and I don't know when this will ever happen, see the director's cut that was released in two thousand and two with quite a number of thirty five millimeter prints. If you can see that on the big screen on 35, I think it'd be, I think you'll be enchanted. I really do. Darkness is a great feminist. <laughs> he says that women, women have the greatest power, the power of creation. No, no. Yeah. The no. greatest uh, opening <laughs> monologue of all time. I am the Lord of darkness. I require the solace of the shadows and the dark of the night. Which was written specifically because Tim Curry did not want to be in the makeup anymore. So Ridley Scott had to be like, how are we going to get him to like be introduced and be in all these scenes? You don't show him. And so they just have a monologue. And man, that opening monologue is so good. Great reveal. I also just wanted to say before we end, uh, just to, to to credit where credit is due, uh, the executive who told him not to have the monster have sex with the princess was Marsha Nassiter. And you can uh, <laughs> you can Marcia. look up, uh, she's got a documentary about her called A Classy Broad, and she's still with us, born in 1926. I, I'm sure much to Marsha's dismay, if one were to Google fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely. you hear about a heck of a lot of sexual awakenings to darkness. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. get it. I get it. And that and that final fight scene is actually really cool. Like, I will oh give that. God. That's really gorgeous. Okay, final thing that I have to bring up. Better villain, Darkness or Jareth? Darkness. I mean, darkness? I get the thing, and I think David Bowie played it where it's like Darkness, or Jareth is trying to teach her a lesson. He He ultimately is not trying to kill her. He's playing with her. He's toying with mm-hmm. her. But isn't that kind of worse? I mean, they're both sexual predators. Like, we know that. I mean, but it's you, like, which you is worse? He's the devil, No, Becky. I'm right. <laughs> He's able to destroy the world, whereas Jareth is just, like, focused on this I will one also say, I, I do want to make clear, we do know that Darkness has a boss because he talks to a, a higher mm-hmm. up at yes, one point. True. So he might not be Satan himself. He might be a mm. lesser Satan. He talks to that, that weird statue, whoever that is. Find out in Legend <laughs> That's 2. That's true. Yeah, like, oh, that statue scene. We didn't even talk about that. It's so scary. Please <laughs> I watch I mean, Legend. we didn't even talk about Meg Mucklebones, my favorite <laughs> of all the villains. Meg Mucklebones. Robert Picardo's breakout role. Yeah, yeah. Meg Mucklebones, the prosthetics there, and just, yeah, that sequence is iconic. Iconic, yeah. iconic fantasy. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's two Star Trek connections here because we also didn't talk about Gates McFadden is the, one of the choreographers uh, yeah. on, uh, or that was the lead choreographer on Labyrinth. Yeah. I think yeah. that's everything for this week. So once again, I want to thank Alicia Fletcher. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Becky. These are two films that if you told me at seven years old, I would be 37 talking about professionally. <laughs> I would be very happy. So I, I'm happy this came full circle. Living the dream, living the dream. Cameron Maitland, thank you so much once again. Thank you. I'm more of a dark crystal guy but i accept these films as good (laughs) i love it join us again next week where we look at two movies that are reimaginations of the 50s sci-fi b movie one of them plays it straight and one of them is more tongue-in-cheek which is more successful we're going to talk about that next week Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.